Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Sugarwish. Sugarwish is an online gifting site that provides a delightful gift experience followed by delicious treats. They get to choose delivered directly to their door. Here's how it works. A sugar wish can be sent to anybody. So if you're the recipient, you open up an email and it says, someone has sent you a sugar wish and you open it up, you click and it says, pick any four of these delicious candies um, to fill your basket. So you get to look through everything from gummy worms and M&Ms and Skittles and jelly beans and everything. Um, and you click and then check out and it's sent to you in this beautiful box with all these candies inside and a ribbon. And it's just beautifully packaged and sent right to your door. And so somebody, basically, you get to customize your own gift. And it's really awesome. And I did this. And I sent some to my son at boarding school. And we got some here for Halloween. And I highly, highly recommend uh, this company. Um, definitely go check it out, sugarwish.com. Max Gross is a former staff writer for the New York Post and The Forward and is currently the editor-in-chief of The Commercial Observer. He lives in New York City with his wife and son, and his novel is called The Lost Shuttle. Hi, Max. How are you? Hi, Zibby. I'm well. <laughs> okay, so we're here today to talk about The Lost Shuttle by Max Gross, which is you, and that's the cover, but I have the advanced version. And this is in conjunction with the JCC's Florida Jewish Book Fest, which you will be attending, and you'll be in the panelist for their fiction forum, and that's really exciting. So this is a kickoff to that, and I'm excited to be with you. So let's talk about your book, and welcome. Thank you so much. I really hope I don't have any more frozen books. I'm sorry about that. You know, no, unstable connection. Who knows? It could be mine. So, Max, the lost shuttle. Oh, and here, here, here is the actual book. I just got the yes. Yeah. I was just showing the, the actual book. You have the, the the. There's the actual book. That's excellent. Very exciting. So, can you please please tell listeners what it's about? So, the lost shuttle. It's a bad Jewish village, so isolated that it is completely overlooked by the Nazis during World War II. And it's completely overlooked by the Soviet Cold War. And it is basically uh, rediscovered in the here and now. So I've been describing it as a Yiddish brigadoon, like just <laughs> reappearing after many years of <laughs> anonymity. Or you could think of it as a, like an Amazonian tribe of Jews in the middle of the Polish forest. But that's the basically the plot. And, you know, it gets all sorts of clash of civilization when they are reintroduced into a modern world. And what, how did you come up with this idea? You know, I actually, I'm kind of a big history buff and I was reading a book about World War II. And I, in this book, I just had this very weird thought. I was like, you know, all, there were so many shtetls in Eastern Europe, you know, prior to World War II. Like, you know, how is it that they all fell to this, you know, horrible, you know, war? Why, 
why were the, you know, why weren't there any that sort of slipped through like some, you know, middle of nowhere kind of like, you know, village? Why did they all sort of succumb to this? And, you know, just this thought occurred to me like, oh, well, maybe one did. And, you know, I spent, you know, a long time thinking about like, it was an interesting idea, but how would it you know, realistically happen? Max, I keep kind of, fr- keeps freezing a little bit. Oh no. Oh, no. I know, I know, just a little. So if I'm not answering, well, I heard how you were a big history buff and you had to wonder like, what if, what if something had survived? How could one not have made it and your research? So did you do any traveling to the actual places and have like a site that you imagined it to have been? Well, I sort of created the province. So there was no, there was actually, it was a fictional province. Like, you know, in like Faulkner's Yaknipatafa, I have my, you know, my own little, you know, fake province in, in Poland. I did visit Poland. You know, I used to be a writer for the New York Post and I was on the travel beat, which is a great beat if you can get it. <laughs> and I, um, I convinced my editor, David Kaufman, to send me to Poland for just a travel story. And I was pretty deep into the book when I, when I went, but I did visit Auschwitz and I did uh, see a little bit of the countryside, but it was definitely a, a very interesting experience. Yeah, I've been to Auschwitz and that is, it's really just haunting to even step foot there and think of everything that happened and all the rest. And I like this, I just yeah. think your creativity is so great to sort of reimagine what like what would happen? And I, I love that like novelists in general are always like, what if, what if, what if, right? And then all of a sudden we have these amazing stories. And like now I can just get lost in your story of you're wondering what if, what if, especially for this horrific period of time, right? What if more places had lived? It begs the question, like, you know, what if everybody had survived? What would the world be like, right? And it, you just have to, I don't know, my mind goes there. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's still is sort of crazy to think that it was so such an all in everybody's life back then. You don't see too many events like that, 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 that do that. And then actually a friend of mine who just heard about the book told me about these Russians who had still been living under the auspices of communism. Like years later, he just sent me the story. I haven't looked at it yet, but I was like, well, I guess life could be, you know, this is a case of, you know, unbeknownst to me of life imitating art and imitating life and imitating art and all that stuff. Oh my gosh. So how long did it take for you to write this book? What was your process like? Did you outline it first or what was it like? Well, you know, it's funny. When I first thought of the idea, I thought that it was going to take place in the 40s. Like I thought it was going to be like, you know, something that, okay, they got missed and, you know, almost like they come out of the bomb shelter and like, you know, what, what the hell happened while we were gone? And I thought, more, well, why would they have just in 1946 or 1947, why then would they all of a sudden have like, you know, woken up and, you know, why in the fifties? And so it started, I was like, oh, you know what? It should take place now. There was, it was just like a, a, a light bulb that went off in my head. And it was like, it could really sort of grapple with all of the contemporary problems that people face and that, you know, are, 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 are very much on my mind. I'm very much on, I hope, you know, a lot of my readers' minds, stuff like that. And so I think that I really started going with the book when I started thinking about the characters, the main character, Pesha and Yankel. When they started forming in my eyes, I was just like, oh, well, 
let's sort of follow the whole story. Like, you know, what would happen? You know, the town gets rediscovered. The idea of them being missed by the Holocaust, that's like almost like, you know, the starting point, but the, but the real bones of the story should be, you know, what's happening now when they are suddenly introduced to all of this history that just plops out in front of them. And, you know, I had an outline, but I definitely strayed from it a lot over the course of writing it. You know, I, I wrote the first draft a while ago. I finished the first draft in like something like late 2014. And, you know, selling a book is a long process. There was a couple of years of that. But it also, there was a, there was a period where I was reworking it and rewriting it that was also, I also had a son who's now five. And so there were just a lot of like interruptions in, in, in the finishing of the book. But yeah, the process was, you know, I started in like, I, I think I thought of the idea in like 2008, 2009, really started working about it on it in like 2010, 11, finished the draft in 2013, and then sat for two years. And then like in 2017, I was like, all right, I have to finish this. And, um, <laughs> you know, worked on, out on, on, on a revised version. I had a, a very lovely lady named uh, Michelle Brower, who's a, an agent, read a version of it, gave me her notes. And her notes were, you know, very, very smart. And so I basically worked around those notes. And then, yeah, in 2017, I, you know, started pitching it to other, the long story, Michelle switched agencies, all these other things. But I, I found uh, David Vigliano, Nick Gianni, and Tom Flannery, my, my agents. Now Nick is no longer with the agency. We'll end up selling the book. But yes, that was the, that's the whole saga. More than you probably wanted to know. No, no, I find that process so interesting. I really do. And how great that you stuck with it and didn't let it just stay as a file on your computer or whatever. I mean, to bring it out. I mean, I'm sure every experience, like having a five, I have a five-year-old son too. I have four kids, but he's my baby. And having kids changes also your perspective and adds, I feel, some depth to your writing. Like you can, you just have a new perspective as if you did anything, if you had a new job or if you adopted a puppy or something. Anyway, so I'm sure that like, just all these experiences can only help, in other words. So for anybody feeling bad that they have a thing on their desktop, they might get better with time. Who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. No, for sure. I mean, well, you know, if you have four kids, you know what it's like. I mean, like, my God, because you, you have some crisis that has to be addressed <laughs> right away with, with your child. So, yes, it's, it's, it, I think it was Janet Malcolm who called it an infinitely postponable act, right? <laughs> I'm glad that I finally got back to it. That's so funny. Yes, my kids' urgent thing today is putting things on the wish list for Hanukkah. Mind you, it's, you know, obviously still October and, you know, why this is urgent now. We don't even know when Hanukkah is. I had to look it up today. So anyway, but yes, the urgency of kids' needs always trumps a beautiful paragraph that needs to be, you know, crafted carefully and all the rest. Amazing. So tell me how you, like, did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Pretty much. Since I was a kid, I was always writing stories. My parents are both writers. My father was a mystery writer, and his most famous book does not have his name on it. His most famous book is The Verdict, which became a movie with Paul Newman, like 19, the early 1980s. Hmm. But he wrote true crime. He wrote mysteries. He wrote, you know, he, had a, he was a columnist for New York Newsday for 16 years wrote for People Magazine, and my mother was a writer and editor as well. She was one of the editors for T Magazine, the Times Style Magazine. So, you know, there were books everywhere in my house growing up. And it was like very, if you wanted to keep up, you really had to do your reading. You had to sort of do your homework and you had to know 
what you were talking about and you had to, you know, my parents were just not going to tolerate cruddy conversation. That was just not going to be in the... <laughs> so, you know, I grew up a bit of a bookworm. Did you grow up in New York? Grew up in Brooklyn Heights. Okay. Which is sort of Brooklyn, but it's, it's kind of Manhattan too. But. It's not Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I feel like I have great street cred saying that I'm from Brooklyn. So you do. You, it's super you cool. that it's not. Okay. Then I, then I was there. You have major street cred in the literary universe. You are like, you know, born and bred in like the, the heart of the New Yorker. So I give you credit for that. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn Heights. I went to uh, St. Anne's School. I don't know if you've, it's yeah, like yeah. the... Yeah, of course. Yep. Which was, even though it's called Saint Anne's School, and it was a very, very hippy dippy place, it was surrounded by Jewish people. You know, everybody in the, from the headmaster on down was 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 Jewish, and you know, it was always sort of a, a fascination for my parents as well as me was like Jewish history, you know, the Holocaust, but also Jewish literature. You know, we were, I remember as a kid going to a, this friend of my parents' house for the weekend. I guess they lived in like, you know, Cape Cod or something like that. And finding, I was like about 12 years old at the time, finding Gimple the Fool on this person's shelf, you know, just on the, the, on the little room that was my room for the weekend. I took it off. And, you know, it, sort, it definitely was this, you know, lo- love at first sight moment. It was, you know, a, a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, this is, and, you know, I feel like, to a certain extent, the Law Shtetl is my tribute to Isaac Shabbat Singer. But uh, I mean, there were books everywhere. We were very interested in Jewish topics and Jewish books. But we were interested in all sorts of books, too. You know, uh, I think Law Shtetl is also my tribute to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who, you know, I mean, 100 Years of Solitude is one of my favorite books. And Macondo, the town there, w- was very much a model for Kreskel in a lot of ways. Your parents must be very proud of you. It must be <laughs> belling and, you know, excited. So, <laughs> But I don't think that they will have figured out how to get on Facebook. <laughs> well, maybe they'll watch it. <laughs> well, I'm sure this is like one of many appearances you'll be doing. So I'm sure they'll catch something <laughs> along the way. Okay, for sure. When you were saying, you know, I grew up and there were books everywhere you know, how could I not be a writer? I'm just like crossing my fingers that one of my four kids might actually want to write someday and say, you know, I'm, I'm imagining Zoom, you know, 2030 when some, one of them says, well, I grew up with a lot of books around. And I'll be like, yes. <laughs> I did something. Well, I think it's the best way, you know, just put them in the room with the books and they'll, 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 they'll get it. They'll, they'll, they'll take it up by osmosis or something. Exactly. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that happens. It doesn't seem to be working, but whatever, I won't <laughs> give up. So when, what happened between St. Anne's and the New York Post and the book? What else in your like day job life or like what happened writing wise aside from those things? Or was that it? Was it like college to the? No, actually after college, I went to Israel for a year. You know, I went to a very not Jewish college. I went to Dartmouth College, okay. which is a you know wonderful school, but it was like, and actually I was talking about this to a reporter, Emily Barak, last week was, you know, I, I definitely think that there are traces of being like left alone in the wilderness that sort of gave me <laughs> some inspiration for this book. But when I graduated, you know, I mean, I applied for graduate school. And I, you know, I always wanted, as I said, I always wanted to be a writer and applied for graduate school. I got into an MFA program in Columbia for film. Actually, I was going to do screenwriting. I think I was sort of sick of academia. 
I, I was like, you know, I had been in school my whole life and, you know, I sort of was a little exhausted with just like, you know, that, that whole structure. Um, and I thought, you know, I have something more interesting with the next year. Like, I don't know what it'll be, but I, and then I decided, you know what, there's this, there was this program in Israel and I don't think it exists anymore called the Arad Arts Project, which was basically you, you, you sit and you work on your art, whether it's painting or music or, or, or writing. And it's out in Arad, which is near Beersheba in the desert in Israel. And I went for a year. I mean, it was supposed to be seven months and I wound up spending an extra five months there. And it was a very formative experience just because I was sort of on my own in a completely different country, talking to people who had, you know, completely different experiences for me and very sharp perspectives. When you're in Israel, I mean, like you can speak to Arabs, you can speak to Jews and, you know, they live together and they live in the same, you know, under the same tent. And, you know, it's so starkly different. And that was a great experience, despite the fact that, you know, I was there during the Intifada and, you know, it was a lot of pain, but it was nevertheless, you know, something that I, I feel very much formed me. And then when I came back, I worked at the Forward newspaper for about like three or four years, which, you know, was used to be the Yiddish Forward. And then about like 20 years ago or so, maybe a little bit longer than that, they, they had an English version of it that they formed. And that was a great experience. I mean, I was actually talking about this recently as well. You know, just when you work at like one of these like local newspapers, first off, there, there are so many people who like call you because you're the only person that, you, that they can call to like sort of tell their stories. And I had the lowest job on the totem pole in the sense that I was like answering the phone. So I was getting all the phone calls from every disgruntled person who just wanted to tell me about their evil landlord or about their, you know, the implants that were be, that their dentist was putting into their teeth. The real story, somebody did call me and tell me that. And I used to actually get calls from the widow of Ingrata, who was a Yiddish poet, who was, you know, one of the real, like, you know, luminaries in the world of Yiddish literature. Call me to yell at me every time the forward mentioned Isaac Bisheva Singer who she regarded as the worst writer who ever lived and who had like done such shame onto the Jewish people. And it was, it was really right out of uh, Cynthia Ozick's story, this whole experience. And it was a great experience. I mean, you know, you, uh, I was, you know, talking to just people who were, who had a lot to say and who had great stories. And that was also very nice. Yeah. And then I, <laughs> I went to the New York post, which was a great gig. I was, you know, working, at the home section, the real estate section, but I was also just writing a lot of food stories. And then because the travel desk was right next to the real estate desk, whenever the travel editor would go, you know, on trips, he would ask us to like, you know, write his headlines and his captions and thank us. He would send us places. Hmm. He'd be like, okay, well, we have this trip to Italy coming up that we need written about. Do you want to go, Max? Terrific. (laughs) That's wonderful. And then when he left, this was an editor named David Lanzel, he, the, the, the powers that be at the Post were just like, well, we have to figure out who we're going to hire to be the new travel editor. So until we figure that, that out, you know, you guys, you know, take care of it. And so we were like, okay, fine. You know, we, we know what we're doing. And after a couple of months, they were like, well, you guys are doing fine. We don't need another <laughs> travel editor. You know, you're just going <laughs> to... 
So it became travel and real estate and food, which was a great job. <laughs> wow. And do you have like a day job now? Or are you mostly committed to being a novelist or what? Well, I'm definitely committed to being a novelist. And I, the thing that I learned when my son was born that I could only really get away with doing it if I, if I am committed to waking up at before 6 a.m. every day to actually um, get a few pages out there. But no, I'm actually the editor of a real estate magazine, a commercial real estate magazine called The Commercial Observer, which is in its way also an extremely interesting gig, just in the sense of the real estate community is almost this like shtetl of billionaires to a certain extent. <laughs> like the people who sort of own New York, there are so many crazy people in that list. But you know, I, I've, I've, I've met most of them and they're... they're <laughs> And they've all got like these incredibly strange, bizarre stories that go with them. So I don't know. My ne- I don't know what my next book will be, but I think that will be influencing it. Wow. The Shtetl of Billionaires. That's a cool title too. <laughs> Shtetl of Billionaires. I have to trademark that right now. <laughs> yeah. I have my little team doing, uh, you know, getting the trademark while you're hearing. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't even really have a team. I have a tiny team. Anyway, so what are you working on next? Do you have another novel in the works? I actually, I don't know if I'm allowed to really talk about it because I think that Harper owns me body and soul for the next uh, <laughs> for the next 60 days or something like that. I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to speak of that. But you know, one of the things that the long process has allowed me to do has been to just go on to the next thing. So, you know, I have been working this whole time on new things, and I definitely don't want to wait so long before the next thing comes out. So there, there are a couple of different things that could be the next thing. I'm working on all of them at the moment. Wow. Well, I feel like you're going to be this, this is just the beginning for you of like your lifetime of talent in this area. And it's very exciting to see when like someone's debut and where it's going to go from here. And I don't know, it's just very cool. And now I love knowing that like this green cover is all about Dartmouth, which is like, you know, you know. <laughs> you're not an alumnus, are you? Is it, no, no. no, I went to, I went to Yale, although oh. I did spend a week at Dartmouth doing a tennis camp when I was in high school. So I feel like I can say I went to Dartmouth, right? No. <laughs> I feel like I can say I went to Yale because when I, before I went to Dartmouth, the summer to class. Great. So actually we, we did all our schooling together as it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) But I had tons of friends who went to Dartmouth and I feel like I had my former sister-in-law and I've spent a lot of time there. So then my ex, anyway, whatever, I won't go into it. But yes, I've spent a lot of time at Dartmouth. So I know that feeling of being in the woods and I could imagine being lost there (laughs) in a community all unto yourself. So, you know, anyway, well, do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that I will say was I made like a resolution in like, you know, late 2016, like, you know, I am going to finish this. Like, I don't know what is going to happen to it, but this is going to be as, you know, the good a piece of work as I can do. I am going to not stop every day until this thing is finished. And I would wake up at 5 a.m., I, I feel like the there's real finishing something. I'm going to take something to completion and not, you know, I'm not going to just have a good idea and I'm not just going to, you know, throw some things on the page. Like I am really going to think about it as a complete thing and I am going to work at it every day. And it took a lot of time, but it, it paid off. So that be, my advice would be 
get up early or <laughs> work better at night. But I, I, I personally work better in the morning. Me too. Yes, those morning hours before the kids wake up are sacred. <laughs> me time. Me time. Yes. <laughs> well, congratulations again on your book. And I hope you have a great time at the JCC Book Fest, the Jewish Book Fest. It's so great you're going to be there. And for all your upcoming stuff, I'll be rooting for you. So good luck. Thank you, Zimmy. And I'm sorry. I hope it was just that one thing that, like, you know, I was frozen. You know, if there was a, I apologize. It's not your fault. It's technology. And this happens all the time. And there was in and out, but this will be a podcast on moms don't have time to read books as well. Eventually, not too long, but you know, not today. And I will take out all the bits and pieces that were not perfect. And we will make it sound like we had no trouble at all when it's on the podcast. Uh, So I love it. I love it. So there's that. (laughs) There's that. Great. Great. All right. Well, Zibby, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. No problem. And sorry again for the beginning introduction stress. No worries. Okay. All right. Now, yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Sugar Wish. Send a surprise Sugar Wish to somebody you love and check it out yourself, sugarwish.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 